You're listening to a podcast by Oak Magazine. I would like to acknowledge the Dja Wurrung people as the traditional owners of the land on which this episode was recorded. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Welcome to A Friend of Mine, a series of conversations with some incredible and inspiring women in business from regional and rural Australia. I'm Kimberly Finesse your host and the founder and editor of Oak Magazine. And I cannot wait to introduce you to some amazing female entrepreneurs who will share with you their experience and knowledge of what it takes to start, grow and scale a successful business. So let me introduce you to a friend of mine. Grace is a third generation nurse and although she didn't set out to follow in the footsteps of her grandmother and mother, she found herself drawn to the profession. Through her 15 years experience working as a paediatric intensive care nurse, Grace knows how important timely access to services is on mortality rates of children experiencing traumatic injuries. Grace recognised that patients who received CPR or first aid had better outcomes than those who did not and identified first aid training as particularly critical to children in rural areas. From her hometown in Kyneton, Grace formed the Sisterhood Project to mitigate the barriers of distance and affordability for parents and carers in rural areas, providing free access to essential paediatric first aid training for vulnerable groups, particularly in rural Australia. The mum of three hopes this will have a significant impact on child mortality rates in Australia. Grace shares with us why she applied for the award, what she has learned about herself in the process, and the importance of her project. Let me introduce you to my friend and Victorian finalist, Grace. Hello, Grace, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. You're welcome. Thank you for being part of our special series, uh, which focuses on your journey as one of five Victorian finalists for this year's AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's very exciting. It is. Um, it's an exciting journey to be on. Uh, I know the word journey is so overused these days, but it literally is a journey. Um, there's sort of no start and end from what I can uh, gather so far, um, having been on it for just over 12 months and having spoken to others, um, yeah, they sort of say something similar as well. You know, your time isn't up after those first 12 months, which is um, which is good to know. Yeah, and look, I can definitely understand that. I think, you know, even up to this point, I feel like I've been on a little bit of a roller coaster and I have really come a long way um, from when I first submitted the application. Um, so, yeah, I think probably journeys is closest you're probably going to get to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, your presentation, so your in-person presentation a couple of weeks ago, uh, firstly, it had me in tears. Um, um, and just some of those stories that you shared and gave us a real insight into what you uh, what you do um, really pulled on the the heartstrings, and I think all of us were feeling every emotion. But something that actually came from that conversation um, around the importance of CPR. So obviously, given what you do and what you see day in and day out, um, CPR is something that you know you think we should 
all know how to do. Uh, It was just interestingly that I was speaking with a group about your project and there wasn't a unanimous, yes, we all need to know CPR, which was actually quite surprising to me. Um, And, you know, we had a little disagreement there for, you know, I think a drink at least. Um, So what I thought would be really great for those listening is if you could share with us um, why it's important just due to that whole delay in commencing CPR. So, um, yeah, are you able to share that with us? I would really love to. And I think, you know, yeah, it's it's interesting that, you know, you have that conversation, but even if there is a disagreement, that's still a really great opportunity because at least it's being spoken about. Um, I suppose I first would start off with just um, – saying that if anybody out in the community has a cardiac arrest, whether that is a child or an adult, they have a very low rate of surviving to hospital discharge. So um, it's a really important statistic to understand. And the only way that we are going to improve those outcomes for people is if more people in the community know how to perform CPR. So some of the reasons why it's so hard for somebody to survive to hospital discharge, and we use hospital discharge because, you know, most of the studies are based, you know, in health services, is because CPR needs to be commenced within one minute of that person stopping breathing and no longer having a heartbeat. Because after one minute, though, that lack of oxygen really starts to affect the body. If four minutes passes where nobody's commenced CPR, we're going to start to see irreversible damage to their brain and other vital organs. If we don't start CPR within 10 minutes of them no longer breathing and not having a pulse, then they are basically not going to survive even to hospital. So I think when we put it into like these statistics, they're very powerful But then add on, you know, and I'm sorry that I made you cry, Kimberly. I am. Um, I I apologize that I made you tear up. That wasn't my, it wasn't, I didn't like want to go in there with the aim to make everybody cry, but it is highly emotional. And, and I wanted, I did want to convey that, you know, that for me, my passion in this area is because like I've actually cared for children who have had cardiac arrests in the community. And I've seen that when they've had CPR performed, at the scene by people who know what they're doing, they get out of hospital and they get out of hospital and go on to go back to school and live long, happy lives. And, you know, that's what it's about for me at the end of the day and why, like, I've moved from the healthcare space and into the community space because I want to be proactive about stopping kids from, you know, having um, issues from deteriorating out in the community or stopping them from having to end up in the ICU. So, Um, I think it is important that, you know, if everybody in our community knew the basics of basic life support, then we would make huge differences in statistics like within our community. And it's definitely possible. I've taught my three kids CPR and they are varying ages. So, you know, we can start it early. We can build upon it. It it is definitely achievable. So, yeah. It's, um, yeah. And I mean, it, I think it was the story. I think maybe being a parent as well um, and like personally not knowing CPR, um, my husband knows it and, you know, obviously updates himself. But I feel like we're going to be somewhere 
<laughs> without him. <laughs> like when it, when if and if this would ever happen, I'm like this would be my luck, and it'd just be bloody me. So, um, you know, there's also that part of me uh, that's always thinking, oh my god, I really need to get on top of this. Like, yes, you know, did it in I think it was year seven, maybe year eight, year seven, I think it was. Um, I feel like it needs to be something that we keep up on a regular basis because I'm, I'm not sure how I'm going to perform in that situation when something like that happens. So, um, you know, the story and then I suppose where I'm at with it and I'm like, yeah, it just all the emotions and um, maybe a bit of guilt. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, just when I think about me not knowing it as well. So, you know, as a community service, you know, I need to upskill myself. Well, look, you know, I think that also like, we need to make it more available for people to do like, and I suppose that's, I'm probably jumping ahead of myself a little bit here, but that is really where I'm coming from with what I'm trying to do, because I think that it can, people should have access to this training a lot easier. And, you know, if, if you, if you look at when, like, cause I train people in the healthcare space as well. And our sort of average depreciation of knowledge regarding CPR is around six months. So ideally we have opportunities. Oh I know it's actually pretty quick, isn't it? So if we, we should have opportunities for people to constantly be able to update and practice, you know, it, it could be a lot more accessible than what it currently is, you know, um, you know, in the community, we often talk about any attempt is better than no attempt. And of course, I agree with that. But we also have really good evidence now around our attempts and those specific things that we can do, which will get good outcomes. And one of those things is starting CPR early. So calling for help, you know, there's lots of different things there that, you know, it's basically an algorithm at the end of the day. So you can learn that algorithm by rote, and then you've got muscle memory for performing the CPR. So imagine if you were just sort of going in and doing it, having a little practice every six months, you know, unfortunate situation that you might ever be in where you have to do it, but you'd be like, yes, I actually know what I need to do here. Like, I'm really confident that, like, I mean, I'm not happy that I'm having to do it. Nobody would be, but I am confident that I know what to do while I wait for emergency services to arrive. So I suppose it's a little bit of taking what I do in the healthcare space out into the community on a bigger scale, but I do think it's achievable. It's just not probably achievable right now, but getting the ball rolling is definitely possible. Mm. Um, I was going to ask this question a little later on, but I think this fits in perfectly. Um, now with your project, you were focusing uh, firstly on Shepparton, which is you know, I suppose a small regional city town um, in Victoria. Do you want to just explain why Shepparton was such an important starting point uh, for your project? Yeah, I think like we are literally just beginning. So our project is in its infancy. Um, but the Sisterhood Project was formed by myself and my sister. And uh, our main aims is really taking uh, life-saving education out to areas and to vulnerable populations that would normally not have access to it. So you know how like we were talking before about um, you know, how you were reflecting and thinking, you know, I really um, should prioritise this. Um, not everybody has, uh, is not in the position to be able to, you know, find the time, seek out a course and then be able to pay for it because perhaps geographically they're not located where they have access to courses or financially they may not be in a position where they've got the disposable income to access a course. 
Uh, or otherwise it could be that they are non-English speaking because they've entered into Australia on a refugee visa. So they don't actually have it in a, in a format in which they're able to understand or co- where it's culturally appropriate. The reason why it's really important that we try and um, overcome these barriers are the statistics, particularly with children, and my focus is on children, they are two times more likely to die of preventable injuries and illnesses in Australia if they're from a low socioeconomic background. Uh, If they're in a regional, rural or remote area, it is almost three times more likely to die. And then when we look at specific, specific populations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, as we know, we've closed the gap, we've got nearly four times higher. So these are preventable injuries and illnesses. I'm not talking about, you know, um, things that are non-preventable. These are things that we could have intervened or we could have had strategies in place to make it less likely to happen. If we think about the fact that these are the, the children that are dying in higher rates, However, they've not got access, the parents don't have access to training in the same way as perhaps metropolitan parents, parents who have more disposable income. Um, We really need to start looking at those barriers and addressing them. The reason why we chose to start in Shepparton is because both my sister and I grew up there and we have some really great contacts within the council and within some of the groups that support families from lower socio-demographic areas within Shepparton. Um, It has a large cohort of lower social demographic groups. It also has a large cohort of non-English speaking people on refugee visas. So thinking about our project, launching it in a successful way, it made sense for us to start with a region where we already had contacts and bodies that we could communicate with and set up projects so that we could then um, spread it out across Victoria. And that is our plan. So hopefully by rate, by performing a couple of um, pilot programs within Shepparton and seeing how they go, some of the bodies that we're partnering with, like, for example, Berry Street Australia, uh, we will then be able to spread that through to the rest of Victoria. And um, since we've actually been engaged with this process, we've been in contact with providers throughout Victoria um, and also New South Wales and South Australia. So there is a potential for us to grow um, as soon as we are capable to, basically. Mm. Such interesting statistics. And I, I love how you've actually, you know, tried to find where you can have the biggest impact and and leverage those connections. I think that's sort of so important. Um, and again, I I mean, this is why I loved even being part of AgriFutures. Um, the award in itself was just learning so much about, you know, health and and just different communities and, um, you know, the demographics of those communities and, and what we can do to help. And as you said, you know, they were preventable um, things too that we're looking at. So, uh, yeah, obviously amazing project. So what then gave you the confidence to apply for the award? I don't know if I would really call it the confidence. I think it was certainly a throw your hat in the ring sort of scenario. Um, But look, to be honest, it put like you probably put it on the radar for me, Kimberly. I saw, you know, the journey that you had, the journey um, last year, and um, it put it on my radar to sort of have a look into what the award was. And I think I really, um, it resonated with me the 
the way that it was presented is very much that that promotion and support of rural women and how to help them to grow um, and give them professional development opportunities and all the different connections that are possible within the AgriFutures Rural Women Award. I thought, you know, this is something which would be really great for our project um, and some really great connections. Um, so, you know, I suppose I thought I would put brain dump what we wanted to do in the application and see where it went. Um, and to be honest, I, probably, I was a little bit surprised that um, that they uh, that they shortlisted me. I I don't know why, because now that I've had a bit of time <laughs> to sort of think about the project and discuss it more, and obviously hear you know how other people have received it, I think it's been very affirming for me that you know we are definitely doing something important with this you know with the sisterhood project. So um, yeah, it's been good. I think it probably I've probably gained more confidence like throughout the process than I had when I first started. That's for sure. Oh, that's good to hear. Um, how long did it take you to do your application? Um, not very long, actually. I probably popped it all down in like maybe half an hour or so. Is that bad? <laughs> no, no. Oh, well, God, mine was like last minute. Um, <laughs> I think I just got in before the uh, the midnight cutoff. Yeah. Um, but I think it's when like you know your project really well and you know the impact, you know where you want to take it uh, and there's probably there is a level of confidence within yourself of, of what you're doing and, the you know, how that can, I suppose, change lives or, or impact uh, individuals and community. You know, you can then carry that confidence um, in your project and, and knowing it so well into the next stages, which are, um, well, we do an online interview and then we do the actual in-person presentation. How was that for you? How did you feel during that in-person presentation? Look, I've got to be honest, I felt very challenged, but probably in a good way. Um I'm not opposed to a little bit of challenge. I think that through challenging yourself, you certainly do grow. Um, and look, yeah, I certainly had a lot of confidence in our project by this point of time. Like I'd had a lot of opportunity to put the pitch together and really form my thought process around what we wanted to do and the messaging around that. Um, I think the biggest challenge for me and probably what I was not as prepared for is just that sort of personal element, which is also really um, considered in the award and I can't remember who said it in the pitch but someone was like it's you're not just here because of your project grace you're here because of who you are and I was like oh that's sort of like I don't know it caught me off guard a little bit and I was like oh okay I've been I've probably been hiding behind my project a little bit then um, so I think that was a little bit challenging for me and you know definitely doesn't sit comfortably with me so I had to really sort of take that away and digest it and sort of think um you know, how I was going to manage that, I suppose. But yeah, so, but it was good. It was, as I said, it was challenging, but good challenging. Um, I think that's something I realized really early on in the process uh, when I went through. Uh, and it was because, you know, I had that discussion with Lara, um, you know, you phone, you do the phone call before you actually even submit and say, hey, you know, is this something that that fits with Oak and fits with me? And, you know, her, her feedback all the time was, focus on you and what your achievements are. Um, and I think even that, and, and then that was the feedback throughout Aubrey, so the summit as well, all the time. We need to know more about you, your story. Um, and as you said, that can be actually 
challenging or quite confronting because we are so used to um, downplaying what we do. And, and as you said, sitting behind a project, sitting behind a business, a brand, all of that. Um, but it, I suppose from that, do you think that was the, the biggest thing you've learned about yourself is your confidence and, and being your own cheerleader? Yeah, it probably is. I think it's really challenged me to think a bit more about how I back myself personally and how I can, you know, be a bit more confident in like though, like, cause I deliver a lot of education and I'm quite confident to speak to big groups of people. But, you know, as you say, that's sort of like as a repre- representation of something else rather than me personally. So I think I, 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 have, I have had to do a lot of reflection since that pitch around, yeah, my personal attributes and trying to sit a bit more comfortably with um, talking about those. I mean, we do it in an interview, but you sort of psych yourself up for that, don't you? You're like, I know they're going to ask me about my personal attributes. I'm going to talk about X, Y, and Z. Um, but this feels a bit different to that. Like it's a lot, it, I don't know, it, it feels a bit, a lot different to that. So I think that has been good though, because, you know, the way that I reflected on it is, you know, this is what I want for my daughters too. Like I want them to be confident in their skills and ability and proud of those achievements that they've had too. So, you know, I sort of feel it in a way that I owe it to myself to develop this part of me so that I can role model that to them as well. Um, So it's been good. It's, as I say, it's been a good challenge for me um, and probably the right time for me to get it too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's, it's um amazing how the universe works that way. Now, one of the things, and I said it to everyone, was um you know once you've finished the presentation, there was a beautiful park uh, over the road. It was a beautiful day as well in Melbourne. Very unusual. Um, you know, just to head over and even just you know write down how you're feeling, like what you're really proud of. Um, you know, so that you can look back and go, well, actually, I did this, this, and this great, or or that's that really is how I felt. And you're not sort of you know how sometimes you look back and you sort of question or doubt that feeling um and again I wish I had have done it um but instead went to the next thing to the next now you mentioned that you journal quite a bit anyway yeah look I do tend to write things down as a way of processing um yeah bits and bobs it's not a consistent thing like I probably used to be much more consistent pre-children surprise surprise um yeah, but look, if it's, if it's something that is very powerful to me, like an emotion that's very powerful, then I will write that out and through that process sort of do a bit of self-reflection and, um, yeah, I suppose it's a, it's a way of processing things in a personal way, yeah. Mm. Now I just want to wrap us up um, with one more sort of question and, and reflection, I suppose, and and that is to congratulate you on getting your charity, your mm. not-for-profit status approved. So well exciting. Because yes. from what I've heard, it's not an easy no. process. No, not easy. No, I would definitely agree with that. Like, you know, I've started up a business, so – I was sort of thinking, oh, you know, you just apply and do all the bits and bobs that you've got to do and then be approved. But, no, there's a lot more, and I think, you know, reasonably there's a lot more sort of hoops you've got to jump through to make sure that you're legitimate. 
um, and that your project isn't being done a million times by lots of other people as well. Um, but yeah, being registered is really important because it means that we can apply for funding and grants and, you know, move along with even taking donations and apply for them to be tax deductible gift um, donations as well. So it just opens up the many realms of possibilities for us, um, you know, to be able to make our project happen. So yeah, we're so excited when that happened. <laughs> Yeah, and so you should be. As you said, you um, run a business, uh, you're applying for that, you also work back in the healthcare um, system, I suppose you'd call it, you have kids, and I think you do about three or four other things. Uh, <laughs> like I know that people ask me how I do it all and it's one of those questions that I'm like, eh. Um, <laughs> but seriously, it's because I look at people like you and I'm like, oh, my God, I've gotten like – mine's easy compared to what you're all doing running around with 50 different projects so um yeah well done huge effort um do you even sleep I think that's my question look I do sleep I probably don't sleep enough um but look I think that just some of us are wired in the way that we like to do lots of things um and I've tried at multiple times in my life to slow down and sometimes there's definitely pockets where I do less but um, I enjoy juggling multiple balls. And I think that's probably why I became an ICU nurse too. Like that sort of environment is not for the faint-hearted. It is busy. It is constant. You're constantly changing priorities. It's probably the same, I'd imagine, in media, which is your background, isn't it, as well? Like I can imagine coming up to deadlines, it's probably just nuts. Yeah. And so I don't know, like I, um, yeah, so I, I, I actually perform really well when I have diversity in my life and I have lots of different things that I'm passionate and excited about. So um, I just am realistic about what I can achieve. And sometimes I have to just have a conversation. And actually, FYI, I had one the other day with one of my bosses to say, you know, I am feeling a little bit pressured and I feel like I'm reaching my you know, stress point and what can we do to be able to manage that within this other company that I work for. And so I think it's just really around, like around that, like management of your your stress and your responsibilities and slowing it down when you need to and not taking on things when you don't want to. Um, so, yeah, like if you look at me and you're thinking, oh, my God, I've got to do more or um, how does she do it all? Well, sometimes I don't. So that's probably just the important thing to t take away from it. You know, sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not. So, yeah. um, No, I don't look at you and think, oh, my God, what more can I do? I think I'm at that point where I'm like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm at capacity and I know it. Um, <laughs> it's more like what thing can I pull off or what better organisation can I get in place to manage the kids? Because I feel like my kids have got busier this year. Um, you know, one's got a job and then um, two of them are in like uh, I suppose you'd call academy, like extra sporting um, curriculum I suppose. I don't know what you'd call it but um, essentially that just means I drive around more and, and pay more money for them to, to do what they love. But, it, yeah, it's interesting how just at different stages of their little childhood um, – yeah, how you just it's different busy. Yeah, so, I get. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, that's I'm not a whole having new thing to deal for me. That. Yeah, I'm not at that stage yet. But yeah, I can imagine the taxi stage. Everyone does speak about it, so yeah, it's on my radar. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? We we so often think that when they're little, you're the busiest. But I don't know. It's just a different busy. But um, I was really interested when you just said that you had spoke you know, to that, I suppose, you know, your manager, what came out of that? Did you come up with like some sort of little plan that can help reduce your workload or? 
Yeah, no, we did. Yes. So I like it was a great conversation. You know, we spoke about, um, yeah, what I'm currently able to manage and what I'm having difficulty getting to. Um, and we re-examined. So I deliver, like, this is a company that I deliver courses for and it, sometimes it can be in the state and sometimes it can be interstate. So really having a look at, you know, what's achievable for me to do right now. Um, and, you know, I think it's really important to have these conversations early. You know, I said to her at the moment, I'm, I'm feeling uncomfortable with the amount of stress that I'm feeling. And, you know, the reality is that I'm not going to put like my mental health or my relationship with my children and my family before other things. So we need to sort of put some flexibility in these other things. And so, yeah, we worked on the courses that were coming up and reduced the workload a little bit. So, yeah, like it was a good conversation from that point of view. And I think probably also a good manager, you know, to hear what I was saying and work with me so that I don't end up in a point where I'm sort of like, ah, I'm done. <laughs> yep. I just think there'd be so many of us that are probably in that situation but not sure um, how it would be received by a manager or, or that, there, you know, that there is a possibility that you can actually approach and say, and I think just those words, just that little statement that you used, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm feeling under pressure at the moment. I'm not comfortable with my stress levels. Like that's, um, yeah, I suppose both parties have to come to, to an agreement. But, um, yeah, that's really, really interesting. And I think a good manager definitely comes to that um, to that statement with, you know, open ears and sort of help strategize how you can manage that stress because, you know, ultimately they don't want to lose those those skills and, you know, the knowledge and all of the things that you bring to the table. Um, and I think, you know, it's an investment in, as you and as, as an employee as well, you know, if we can manage your stress through this particularly tricky period, um, then you'll still be there, you know, and, yeah, it, it's it's a long it's a longer game isn't it it's not <laughs> yeah and I suppose that's yeah. the thing isn't it like that next step is that you just you work through that stress it doesn't improve and the only way you see out is to yeah finish up at the job so um yeah yeah which is not good for anybody trying is it? to get ahead of it mm, that's it no it isn't no and especially if there's something that can change if mm. you can you know make a little um adjustment for that period um and that's what stress is sometimes it's just that little period that you're going through and um yeah you just need to to get yourself through it mm. I actually could talk to you more, um, like really honestly, um, but these are supposed to be really mini series. I know, I have <laughs> Just that. a really quick one. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, there's always other questions, more conversation, but I just want to thank you so much again and I wish you all the best with the Sisterhood Project and, um, yeah, I can't wait to catch up with you like literally in less than a week now oh, for the um, announcement mm. in Melbourne. Yes, very exciting. And thank you so much, Kimberly. It's been lovely chatting about all this stuff. So thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, before you take off with all that inspiration and knowledge, we'd love for you to leave a review on our podcast so that we can continue to amplify women's voices in the media. And if you have any questions, we'd like to celebrate a win. You can always connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Oak Magazine AU. I'm so glad we've met and that now you know a friend of mine. <laughs>